Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian. Welcome to The Harry Glorikian Show, the interview podcast that explores how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. Artificial intelligence, big data, predictive analytics. In fields like these, breakthroughs are happening much faster than most people realize. If you want to be proactive about your own healthcare and the healthcare of your loved ones, you'll need to learn some of these new tips and techniques of how medicine is changing and how you can take advantage of all the new options. Explaining this approaching world is the mission of the new book, The Future You. It's also our theme here on the show, where we bring you the conversations with innovators, caregivers, and patient advocates who are transforming the healthcare system and working to push it in positive directions. So when you step back and think about it, why is it that people like me write books or make podcasts about technology and healthcare? Well, like I just said, it's because tech is changing everything about how healthcare works. And the changes are coming much faster than they ever did in the past. In fact, the change feels like it's accelerating. Each leap in innovation enables an even bigger leap just one step down the road. Another way of saying that is that technology change today feels exponential. And there's nobody who can explain exponential change better than today's guest, Azim Azar. Azim produces a widely followed newsletter about technology called Exponential View. And last year, he published a book called The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics, and Society. He has spent his whole career as an entrepreneur, investor, and writer trying to help people understand what's driving the acceleration of technology and how we can get better at adapting to it. Azim argues that most of our social, business, and political institutions evolved for a period of much slower change. So we need to think about how to adapt these institutions to be more nimble. If we do that right, then maybe we can apply the enormous potential of all these new technologies, from computing to genomics, in ways that improve life for everyone. Azim and I focus on different corners of the innovation world, but our ideas about things like the power of data are very much in sync. So this was a really fun conversation. Here's Azim Azar. Azim, welcome to the show. Harry, what a pleasure to be here. I definitely want to give you a chance to sort of talk about your work and your background so we really get a sense of who you are. But I, I'd first like to ask a couple of, you know, big picture questions to set the stage for everybody who's listening. You, you like this word and, and use it exponentially in your branding and almost everything you're doing uh, across your platform, which is what we're going to talk about, but just for people who don't aren't maybe familiar with that word exponential, what does that word mean to you? Why do you think that that's the right word to explain how technology and markets are evolving today? Uh, such a great question. I love the way you started with the easy questions. Uh, I'm just <laughs> kidding because it, it's it's hard it's hard to summarize uh, short but in a brief brief state. So, so, uh, you know, exponential is this idea that comes out of math. It is um, the idea that something grows by a fixed proportion um, in any given time period. 
an interest-bearing savings account, 3% growth, or in the old days, we'd get 3% per annum, 3% compounding, compound interest is really powerful. It's what your mom and your dad told you, start saving early so that when you're a bit older, you'll have a huge nest egg and it never made sense to us. And, and the idea behind a, an exponential is that these are processes which you know, grow by that certain fixed percentage every year. And so the amount they grow grows every time. It's not like going from the age of 12 to 13 to 14 to 15, where actually proportionately you get less older every year. Because when you go from 15 to 16, you get older by 1 15th of your previous age. And when you go from 50 to 51, it's by 1 50th, which is a smaller proportion. Someone who was growing in age exponentially would be growing by say 10% every year. So you go from 10 to 11 and that's by one year. From 20, you go to 22 by two years from 30 to 33. So that's the idea of an exponential process. It's kind of compound interest. But why I use the phrase uh, today to de describe what's going on in, in the economy uh, and in the technologies that drive the economy is that many of the key technologies that we currently rely on and will rely on as they replace old uh, industrial processes are improving at exponential rates on a price performance basis. That means that every year you get more of them for less, or every year what you got for the, pre the same dollar, you get much more of. And I specifically use um, a, a, a threshold, and that threshold is to say, essentially, it's an exponential technology if it's improving by double digits, 10% or more, every year on a compounding basis for decades. And many of the technologies that I look at increase by, uh, improve by 30, 40, 50, 60% or more um, every year, which is pretty remarkable. That, the reverse of that, of course, is deflation, right? These capabilities are getting much cheaper. And I think the reason that's important and the reason it describes the heartbeat of our economies is that we're at a point in development of, uh, you know, sort of economic and technological development where these improvements on, on, can be felt, they're viscerally felt across a business cycle, across a few years, in fact. And that isn't something that we have reliably and regularly seen um, in any previous point in history. The idea that this pace of change can be as fast as it, as it is. And on the cover of my book, The Exponential Age, which I'm holding up uh, to, to you, <laughs> uh, Harry, the thing about the curve um, is is that it starts off really flat and a little bit boring, and you would trade that curve for a nice straight sharp line at 45 degrees. And then there's an inflection point when it right. goes suddenly goes kind of crazy and out of control. And my argument is that we are now past that inflection point and we are in that, that, that sort of vertical moment and we're gonna to have to contend with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we are, mentally aligned and I, I try to talk to people about this. I mean, I, when we were doing the genome project at Applied Biosystems, you know, when we had finished, I think it was 2% or 4% of the genome, everybody's like, oh, you have like 90 something, and they couldn't see the exponential curve. And then we were done like five years later. Um, and so it's it's this inability of the of the human mind, and I, you know, it's really not designed to do that, but we're, we're not designed to see exponential shift. We're sort of looking around that corner from a evolutionary perspective to see what's happening. But, you know, exponential growth is not 
a new concept. If you think about, you know, really, I think the person that brought it to the forefront was Gordon Moore, right? With, uh, you know, how semiconductor chips were going to keep doubling every two years and cost was going to stay flat. And how do you see it playing out today? What is so different right now or say in the past two, three, four, five years or what you can see going forward that may not have been as obvious 10 or 15 years ago? It is an idea that's been around with us for a long time. Um, you know, arguably Thomas Malthus, the uh, uh, British scholar in the 18th century who worried about the exponential growth of the population, b b destroying up the land's carrying capacity and ability to produce crops. And of course, we have the, the sort of ancient Persian and Hindu stories about the vizier and the chessboard who, uh, uh, you know, puts a grain of rice and doubles on each square and doubles at each time. Um, so it's an idea that's been around around for a while. Um, the, the 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 thing that I think has happened is that it's back to it's back to that point, the kink, the inflection in the curve, the point at which in the get, in the story of the chess, the king gets so angry with his vizier that he chops off his head. The point with the semiconductors where the chips get so powerful and so cheap that computing is everything, and then every way in which we live our lives um, is mediated through these devices. And that wasn't always the way. I mean, you and I, Harry, are men of a certain age, and we remember <laughs> posting letters and receiving mail through the letterbox in the morning. And there was then some 15 years later, there or 20 years later, there was a fax, right? I mean, that, right. that's that's what it, it looked like. And, and the, the thing that's different now from the time of, of Gordon Moore is that that what he predicted and, and sort of saw out as his clock speed turns out to be a process that occurs in many, many different technology fields, um, not just in computing and the one that you talked about as well, genome sequencing and in, in other areas like um, renewable energy. And it uh, and so it becomes a little bit like he's a chip term, like the clock speed of this modern economy. But the second thing that is really um, important is to ask that question, where is the bend in the curve? And, and the math purists amongst your listeners will know that an, an exponential curve has no bend. It, 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 it depends on where you zoom in, whatever, however you zoom, when you're really close up, you're really far away, you'll always see a bend and it will always be in a different place. But the, the bend that we see today is the moment where we feel there is a new world now, not an old world. There are things that generally behave differently, that what happens to these things that are connected to exponential processes are not kind of geeks and computer enthusiasts uh, in, in Silicon Valley building that they're, they're happening all over the world. And for me, that turning point happens some point between 2011, 2012 and 2015, 2016, because in 2009, America's largest companies were not in this order. ExxonMobil, Walmart, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, General Motors, General Electric, Ford, AT&T, Valero. What do all of them have in common? They are all old companies that are all built on three technologies that emerged in the late 19th century, the car or the internal combustion engine, the telephone and electricity. And with the exception of Walmart, every one of those big companies was founded between about 1870 and sort of 1915. Mm -hmm. And Walmart is dependent on the car because you needed suburbs and you needed 
large cars right. with big trunks to, to cart away 40 rolls of toilet paper. So, so th- and that was a century long shift. And then if you look out four years after 2009, America's largest firms, in fact, the world's largest firms are all exponential age firms like the Tencent right. and the Facebooks of this world. But it's not just that, at that period of time, that's the moment where solar power became, for generating electricity, became cheaper than generating electricity from oil or gas in, in most of the world. It's the point at which the price to sequence the human genome, which you know so much better uh, than I do, uh, diminished below, below $1,000 uh, yep. per sequence. So all these things came together and they presented uh, a new way of doing things, which I call the exponential age. Yeah, I'm in my last book, I, I you know, I, I do state that the difference between evolution and revolution is time, right? If if you wait long enough, things happen evolutionarily, but at the speed that things are changing, it feels revolutionary in, in how it's affecting everybody. So let's rewind and talk about your background. You've been active as a business columnist, as a journalist, a startup founder, a CEO, a leader of corporate innovation incubators at Reuters and, and a venture capital partner. Um, lately, you've built what, what seems like a very busy career around books and talks and podcasts and all around this theme of accelerating technology. So I'd love to hear how you've how you first got interested in all these themes about technological change, you know, how society can manage this change. I know you were at Oxford. Uh, you got your master's degree in the famous PPE program, the politics, pol- uh, philosophy and economics. Uh, you know, was it soon after that that uh, you you went down this road or is is Oxford where it all started? It started well before then, uh, in a in a in a weird way. So so you know my my interest really is between sits between technology and um, and economic institutions and and society, and I um, I was born like most of us uh, uh, to to two parents and um, <laughs> my parents were working in in Zambia in the early seventies. Um, and my dad was working on um, helping this newly independent country develop economic institutions. It didn't have them and it needed them to go through that sort of good institutions, make for healthy economies, make for social welfare and sort of civil politics. That's the argument. So he was out there doing all of that. Um, and I was born the year after Intel released its 4004 uh, chip, uh, which is widely regarded as the sort of the chip that kicked off the the personal computing revolution. Um, and and so, so in the backdrop of people talking about development and development economics and being curious about my own personal story, I was exposed to these ideas. I mean, you don't never don't understand them when you're eight or ten, you know. But but you're exposed <laughs> to them and you have an affiliation yes. to them and and so on. Um, and um, at the same time, computers were entering into the popular consciousness. You know, you had um, C-3PO, the robot, and computers in Star Trek. And I saw a computer in 1979, and I had one from 1981. And so my interest in these things, um, these two tracks, was start set off quite early on. And I really, really loved the, the computing. Um, and I did, you did notice, but you don't necessarily 
understand that compu why computers are getting more and more powerful. My first computer only had one color. Well, it had two, white and black. Um, and my second could manage 16 at some time. Uh, uh, pardon me, not 16, eight out of a palette of 16 at any given time. And, and they get better and better. And so alongside my my life were computers getting faster and learning to program them and discovering the internet. And, and that I think has always sat alongside me against this kind of family curiosity. I suspect if my parents had been, I don't know, doctors, I would have been in your field in the field of bioinformatics and applying exponential technologies to, to healthcare. And if my parents had been engineers, I would have been doing something that intersected engineering and computing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I remember when we got our first chip, uh, when I was first learning about, you know, computers, like it was, you know, eight bits, right? And then 16 bits and, oh my God, what could we do with them? And we were building them and, um, I actually have to get you a copy of my new book because I think if you read the first chapter and what you just said, you'll be like, oh my God, we have more in common than, than we may think, even though, you know, we're, you're where you are and I'm in the healthcare field to it, you know, but, but, you know, you were co-founder and CEO of, of a company, I believe that was called Peer Index, um, which was a startup in the late 2000s, um, where, and even back then, you were trying to quantify people's influence on different social media platforms. And I'm trying to remember, like, do I even know what the social media platform was back in 2000? It seems like so long ago. And you successfully sold it to, to Brandwatch in, in like 2014. What did that experience sort of teach you about, you know, the bigger issues and how technology impacts society and vice versa? Because I have to believe that you know, your hands-on experience and what you were seeing has to have changed the way that you thought about how fast this was going and what it was going to do. Oh, oh that is an absolutely um, fantastic, fantastic question. Um, and, uh, you know, you really get to the heart of all of the different things that you learn as a founder. When we, when I started Peer Index, um, the idea was really that, um, people were going on to the internet with profiles that they maintained for themselves. So up until that point, uh, apart from people who'd been really early on the internet, like, like you, you and I who used Usenet and then early web pages for ourselves, no one really had a presence. And then these social apps like uh, MySpace and Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook show up and they start to give people a presence. And we felt that initially, there would be a clear problem around trying to discover people because at the time the internet was an open network. You could you could look at every anyone's page on Facebook. There weren't these walled gardens, and we looked down on them. So we thought initially that there would be a, um, a an opportunity to build some kind of expertise system where I could say, "Listen, find me something someone who knows something about." Um, you know, sushi restaurants in, in Berlin. And it would, it would help me find that person. I could connect their profile and talk to them because it was the really early naive days before Facebook or LinkedIn had advertising on them. And we could, we, we kind of got the technology to work, but actually the market was moving and we couldn't um, land, land that. And so we had to kind of pivot as you do several times ultimately until we became this kind of influence analytic for, for marketers. But, but the, the few things that, that, that I, I learned, um, so the first one was 
how quickly new players in a market will go from being open to being closed. So it was, uh, it was 2011 when Facebook started to put the shutters down on its data and become a, a, a closed garden. Um, and they had, they realized that the network effect and data is what drove them forward. And, um, right. and, and the, the, but the second thing was the speed with which what we did changed. So when we were getting going and doing all of this kind of analytics on Twitter and Facebook, they didn't really have data science teams. In fact, Twitter's first data scientist couldn't get his US visa and ended up helping working with us for several, several months. Um, and, and I, I think back to the fact that we used five or six different core technologies for our data stores in a seven year period. And in that time, what we did became so much more powerful. So, so right. when we started, we had maybe like 50,000 people in this thing. It was really hard to get it to work. The entire company's resources went on it. Um, at one point we were, we had about a hundred million people um, in the data in our data set, or hundred million profiles wow. in the data set. They were all public, by the way. I should say this is all public start data, and it was just like a search engine in a way. And mm -hmm. in order to update the index, we would need to run processes on thousands of computers, and it would take a big, big, big servers, right? And it would take a day. Yep. By the time we sold the company, a couple more iterations of Moore's law some improvements in software architecture, we were updating 400 million user profiles in real time on a couple of computers. Yep. So not only had we quadrupled the data set, we had increased its uh, sort of uh, decreased its latency. It was pretty much real time. And we had reduced the amount of computers we needed by a factor of about 400. Um, and it was a really you know, remarkable ev evolution. And, and that gets me to the third lesson. So the second lesson is really all about that pace of change and the power of Moore's law. And then the third lesson was really that my engineers learnt by doing. They figured out yeah. how to do this themselves. Um, and, you know, whereas I was sort of roughly involved in the first design, by the time we got to the fifth iteration, this was something, a process that was entirely run by some sort of brilliant young uh, uh, members of the team. Yeah. I mean, you've got to actually cook something, um, to understand how to do it and taste it and understand how it's going to come out. Um, so your new book, the exponential age came out this fall. Um, you, you know, in the first chapter, you sort of identify two main problems, right? One is how do we perceive technology? And then or the way we relate to technology. And can you describe the two problems as you see them and maybe, maybe even hint a little at, I don't want every, you know, I don't want, if people want to buy the book, I want them to buy it, but maybe hint at the solution. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there, are, there are a couple of issues here, right, in the exponential age. The first is that technology creates all sorts of new potentials. And we, we live them. We're doing this over Zoom, for example. Right. Um, and that there are, but the arrival of new potentials always means that there's an old system that is going to be um, partially or entirely replaced. And so 
I describe that process as, um, as the exponential gap. It is the gap between the potentials of the new and the way in which most of us live, live our lives. And, and the thing is, the reason I say the way most of us live our lives is because our lives, even in America, which doesn't like its, its sort of government, um, are governed by institutions and by regulations. Um, you, you know, when, when you, um, uh, when you start to cook, you, you wash your hands, right? You, there's no law. That's just an institution. It's common habit. If you have teenage kids like I do, you're battling with the fact that people are meant to talk over dinner, not stare at their phones. Um, in, in, um, in the UK, uh, there is an institution that says on a, on a, red light traffic signal, you never turn, you wait. It's not like the US where you can do that. Now, some of these institutions are codified like our tra traffic laws and some, some are not. There are then more formal institutions of different types like you know the Fed or NATO or the Supreme Court. And the purpose of institutions, social, formal, legal, informal, is to make life easier to live, right? right? You don't have to remember to put our pants on I will read a rule that says, put your pants on before you leave the house. It's like, you just put them on and everybody kind of knows it. And there's no law that says you should or shouldn't, right? It's like, and, and so, so they become very valuable. But the thing is that the institutions in general, by their nature, don't adapt to right. at the speed with which these new technologies do adapt. And even slower moving technologies like the printing press really upended institutions. I mean, Europe went into centuries of war <laughs> just after the printing press emerged. So, so for the, the central heart of the challenge is on the one hand, we have these slightly magical technologies um, that do amazing things, but they, they somewhat break our, um, our institutions. And we have to figure out how we get our institutions to adapt better. But there's a second complication to all of this, which is that which is, I think, more one that's about historical context. And that complication is that the way we have talked about technology, especially in the West in the last 40 or 50 years, has been to suggest that technology is deterministic. We're a bit like people in a pre-medicine, pre-science era who just say, the child got the pox and the child died. We say the technology arrived and now we must use it. The iPhone arrived and we must use it. The Facebook arrived and we must use it. Use it. We, we've gotten into this worldview that technology is this sort of unseeming deterministic force that arrives from nowhere and that a few men and women in Silicon Valley control, can, can harness it. We've lost sight of the fact that technology is something that we as members of society, as business people, as innovators, as academics, as parents get to shape because it is, it is something that we build ourselves. And, and that for me was a second challenge. And what I sought to do in the book, uh, to, as I was describing the exponential age, is not only persuade people that we are in the exponential age, but also describe how it confuses our, our institutions broadly defined, and also explain why our, why our response has sometimes been a bit poor, some, a large part of which I think is connected to putting technology on a particular pedestal where we don't ask questions of it. And then hopefully at the end of this, I do give some suggestions. 
Well, it's interesting, right? I've had the pleasure of, of giving talks to different policymakers, and I always tell them, like, you, you need to move faster. You need to implement policy. It's good to be a little wrong and then fix it, but don't be so far behind the curve that you, you know, some of these things need corralling. Otherwise, they do get a little, you know, get out of hand. Now, in healthcare, we have almost the opposite. We're, we're trying to break the silos uh, of data so that we can improve healthcare, improve diagnosis, improve outcomes for patients, find new drugs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot there a little bit and sort of dive a little deeper into life sciences and healthcare, right, which is the focus of the show, right? And in the book, you, 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 you say that our age is defined by the emergence of several general purpose technologies, which I'm totally aligned with, and that they are all advancing exponentially. And you actually say biology is one of them. Um, so first, what are the m most dramatic examples in your mind of exponential change in life sciences? And how do you believe they're affecting people's health? Uh, well, I mean, if you got the Moderna or uh, BioNTech vaccination, you're a, you're a lucky recipient uh, of that uh, te technology. And it's affecting people's health because it's putting a little nanobot controlled by Bill Gates uh, in your bloodstream <laughs> to get you to hand over all your Bitcoin to him uh, is, uh, is the other side of the, the problem. Um, but I mean, you know, I mean, more, more, more seriously, the the uh, the, the, the Moderna vaccine is an example that I, I give at the at the end of the book. Um, comes about so remarkably quickly by a combination of these exponential technologies. I'm just going to look up the, 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 the dates. So on the 6th of January 2020, um, there's a, a, a release of the sequence of a coronavirus genome from a, from a respiratory uh, disease in Wuhan. Yep. And the uh, the genome is just a string of letters and it's put on GenBank, which is a bit like an open source story storage for, for gene sequences. People started to download it and um, synthetic genes um, were rapidly led to more than 200 different vaccines being developed. Moderna, by February the 7th, had its first vials of its vaccine. That was 31 days after the initial release of the sequence. And another six days, they finalize the sequence of the vaccine and 25 more days to manufacture it. Um, and within a year of the virus um, uh, sequence being made public, 24 million people had had a, a one, one dose of it. Now, that's really remarkable because in the old days, by which I mean February yep. 2020, um, experts were telling us it would take at least 18 months to figure out what a vaccine might even look like, let alone tested and in place. So you see this dramatic time compression. Now, what were the aspects in, in, at play? So one aspect at play was a declining cost of genome sequencing, which the machines right. are much cheaper. It's much cheaper to sequence these samples. That means that the entire supply chain of um, RNA um, amplifiers and so on are, are more widely available. Um, this then gets shared on a website that, that can be run at very few dollars. It can get access to millions of people. Um, the companies who are doing the work 
are using synthetic genes, which means um, uh, basically uh, writing out new bases, which is another core technology that's going through an exponential cost decline. And they're using a lot of machine learning and big data in order to explore the phenomenally complex biological space to zero in on potential candidates. Um, so that the whole thing has knits together a set of these different technologies um, in, in a very, very powerful and, and quite distributed combination. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's to make it easier for other listeners to discover the show by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the Ratings and Reviews section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says Write a Review to leave your comments. It'll only take a minute, but you'll be doing me a huge favor. And also one more thing. If you enjoy hearing from the kinds of innovators and entrepreneurs I talk to on the show, I know you'll like my new book, the Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create more personalized diets and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is out in print and ebook format from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Just go to either site and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. Thanks, and now back to the show. Let, let, let's step back here for just a minute. So I wonder if you have a thesis um, from a fundamental technology perspective. What's really driving the exponential technological change, right? Um do you think that that it it's is there a force maybe outside of semiconductors that are driving biology forward? What's your view? I mean, if you took the computational tools away from life sciences and drug developers, would we still see the same rapid advances that in that area? And the answer could be no, because I could tell you my my thoughts after you tell me yours. Well, um, we wouldn't see the same. Uh, advances, but we would still see significant um, uh, advances, and it's hard to unpick one, you know, one from another. But if you look at the, I mean, you worked on the genome sequencing stuff, so you know that there's a lot of interesting aspects to do with um, the reagents that are used, the electrochemistry, the arrays, and making little ongoing improvements in 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 those those areas. Um, there are also key improvements in the actual kind of automation of the processes between each each step. Um, and some of those automations are not, um, you know, they're not kind of generalized robots, soft robots. They are trays that are being moved at the right time from one spot to another stop on, on a kind of lab bench. So you'd still see the improvements, um, but you wouldn't see the same pace that we have seen from computing. And, and, and for two reasons, right? So one is that, kind of the, the core ability to um, store lots of this data, which runs into the exabytes and then sift through it is closely connected to storage capacity and computation capability. But right. also even the, the CAD package 
that the person used to redraw the designs for the new laboratory bench to handle the new vials of reagents required a computer. Um, but, yes. but you, you, yeah. you know, I mean, I, so what, uh, what's your understanding as someone who's on the inside? And but note to listener, that was a bit cruel because Harry's the expert on this one. And- <laughs> no, 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 no. I, you know, it, 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 it's interesting, right? I, I believe that now that information is more readily available, which again drives back to sensors, technology, uh, computation speed, as well as storage, is changing what we do because the information feeds our ability to generate that next idea. And most of this was really hard to get. I mean, in back in the day, I mean, if you know, um, now I wear a medical device on my, on my wrist, you know, this, I look as a, as a data storage device, right? Data aggregation device. And this, I look at it more as a coach, right? And, but the information that it's getting, you know, from me on a momentary basis is, I mean, one of the companies I helped start, I mean, we have trillions of heartbeats, trillions. Can you imagine the analytics from a machine learning and, you know, AI perspective that I can do on that to look for, is there a signal of a disease? Can I see sleep apnea or one of the, I could never have done that um, 10 years ago. Right. Or would, I mean, even 10, how about, I mean, five, maybe, right. I mean, it's, <laughs> the, the thing that I find remarkable about, about all of this is, um, what, uh, you know, what, what, what it's told me. So I went, um, from, uh, I used to check my bloods every year. And so I would get a glucose, uh, uh, reading or an insulin reading every year. Um, I then put a CGM on, a continuous glucose monitor, um, and I wore it for 16, 18 weeks, and it gave me a reading every 15 minutes. So I literally went from once a year, which is uh, 365 times um, 96 15-minute intervals. So it's like a 40,000-fold improvement I went to from, <laughs> from to that to fit every 15 minutes. And it was incredible and amazing and changed my life in so many good ways, um, which I'm happy to go into later. But the moment I put the 15 minute on, I, I kid you not, within an hour, I was looking for the streaming CGMs that give you real time feed, no 15 minute delay. Um, right. And and there is one that Abbott makes through a company called, sells through a company called Super Sapiens. But, but that, because suddenly I was like a pilot whose altimeter doesn't just tell them you're in the air or you've hit the ground, which is what happened when I used to go once a year. I've gone to getting an altitude reading every minute, which is great, but still not brilliant for landing the plane to wait, I could get this every second. And this would be incredible. And and I I find that really amazing. I just, I just, and what we can then do with that across longitudinal data is just something else. We're, We're totally aligned. And, you know, jumping back to the deflationary force of all this is what we can do near patient, what we can do at home, what we can do at, uh, you know, I'll call it CVS. I think by you, it would be boots. Um, But what these technologies bring to us and how it helps a person manage themselves more accurately or, uh, you know, more insightfully, I think brings us not to chronic 
health, but we will be able to keep people healthier longer and at a much, much lower cost than we did before because, as you know, every time we go to the hospital, it's usually big machines, very expensive, somebody to do the interpretation. And now if we can get that information to the patient themselves and AI and machine learning can make that information easier for them to interpret, they can actually do something actionably that, that, that makes a difference. Um, I, I, I mean, I think it's um, a really remarkable um, uh, opportunity with a big uh, caveat uh, that we, we we can look at look historically. So um, you know we're big fans of the uh, the Hamilton musical in my uh, in my household, and yeah. if you go back to to that time, which is only a couple of hundred years ago. Um, and you said to them, this is the kind of medic medicine they'll have in the US by 2020. I mean, it's space tech, it's alien space tech. Um, uh, you know, you can go in and that we measure things they didn't even know could be measured, right? Like mm -hmm. level of antibodies in the bloodstream and you can get that done in an hour, almost anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, and it's really quite cheap because GDP per capita in the per, per head in the US is like $60,000 a year. And I can go and get my um, my blood's run, a full, full panel run for $300 in London, one of the most expensive cities in the world. 60 grand a year, 300 bucks. Well, surely everybody's getting that done. And yet, and you know this better than me, right? You know this better than me that despite that, we, we don't have everyone getting their bloods done because it's just so cheap, right? There are other structural things that, that, that go on about who gets access. And I think America is a great example of this because for all the people who read, read, uh, wear whoops and have you know, biological ages that are 10 years younger than their chronological age, you've also got like a much, much larger instance of um, deaths by drug overdose and chronic obesity and, and sort of diseases of inflammation and, and so on. And, and that's despite having magical, the magical space technology of the 2020s. So the question I think we have to have is why would we feel that next year's optoelectronic sensors from Rockley and the Series 7 or Series 8 Apple Watch will make the blindest bit of difference to health outcomes uh, for the average American. Now, I, I totally agree with you. I, I mean, I think half of it is education, communication. Um, you know, there's a lot of social and political and and policy and communication issues that exist and actually that was going to be my next one of my next questions for you which is what are some of the ways that exponential change challenges are existing social and political structures and you know do you see any based on all the people that you've talked to you know writing the book etc insights of how we're going, what those are, and maybe some ideas about how we can move beyond them. Mm. Well, I mean, on the uh, the healthcare side, um, I think one of the most important issues is, uh, and this is, I mean, look, I, you've got an American audience and your health system is very different to, um, let's just say everyone. Actually, the, the audience is global. So everybody, I have people that all over the world that listen to this. Fair enough. Okay, even better. So um, the rest of the world will understand this point, um, perhaps more, which is that, that, you know, in many places, parts of the world, healthcare is treated as um, not, you know, it's treated differently to, 
take a vacation or a, or a mutual bond that you buy, right, or, or a car. It's, it's not seen purely as a kind of profit vehicle. It's seen as something that serves the, the individual and serves a community and public health and so, so on matters. And I think one of the opportunities that we have is um, it, to, to think out for, look out for is how do we get the benefits of aggregated health data, which is what you need. You need aggregate population-wide data that connects a genotype to a phenotype. In other words, what the gene says to how it gets expressed to me physically, to my biomarkers, um, you know, my, my what's in my microbiota, what my blood pressure is on a minute-by-minute basis, and uh, my, my glucose levels and so on, um, to whatever illnesses and diseases and conditions I seem to have, right? The more of that that we have, the more we can build predictive models that allow for the right kind of um, interventions and prehabilitation, right, rather than rehabilitation. Um, but in order to do that, at the heart of that, yes, there's some technology, but at the heart of that is how do we get people's data in such a way that they are willing to provide that in a way that is not forced on them through the duress of the state or the duress of uh, sort of financial servitude. And and so that, I think, is something that we really, really need to think about. The trouble that we've had is the companies that have done really well out of consumer data recently, and I don't just mean Google and Facebook, but even all the marketing companies before that, did so through a kind of abusive use of that data where it wasn't really done for our our benefit. You know, I I used to get a lot of spam letters through my, my front door, physical ones. I was never delighted for it, ever. And so, so I think that, that one of the things we have to think, think about is how are we going to be able to build common structures that protect our data, but still create the opportunities to develop new and novel therapeutic uh, diagnosis, early warning uh, systems. Yep. And, and it's not to say there shouldn't be profit-making companies on there. There absolutely should be. But the, the trouble is the moment that you allow the data resource to be impinged upon, then you either head down this way of kind of the sort of dominance that Facebook has, or you head down a way, uh, the route of that kind of abuse of spam, junk email, and so on, and junk physical mail. So I think there is this one idea that can that emerges as an answer, which is the idea of the data commons or the data collective. Um, yep. It, we actually have a couple of them working in healthcare in in the UK, roughly. Mm-hmm. So there's one around um, CT scans uh, of COVID patients. So there's lots and lots of CT scans and other kind of uh, lung imaging um, of COVID patients. And that's maintained in a repository, the sort of national, I forget it, COVID lung imaging data bank or something. Um, yep. And if you're if you're an approved researcher, you can get access to that and it's done on a non-commercial basis, but you could build something commercially on, over the top of it. So those are, the, now the question is, why would I give that scan over? Well, I gave give it over because I've been given a cast iron guarantee about how it's going to be used and how my personal data will be may or may not be used within that. I would never consider giving that kind of data to a company run by Mark Zuckerberg or, um, <laughs> you know, any, 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 anyone else. And that, I think, is the, 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 the crossover point, which is in order to access this, 
um, the, the benefits of this aggregate data from all these sensors, we need to have a sort of human-centric approach to ensure that it's, the exploitation can happen profitably, but for our benefit in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at some interesting encryption technologies where nothing is ever unencrypted, but you can, you know, the algorithm can learn from the data, right? And you're not opening it up. And so there, I believe that there are some solutions that can make, give the side that needs the data what they need, but protect the other side. I still think we need policymakers and regulators to to step up that would cause that shift to happen faster. But, you know, I think some of those people that are making those policies don't even understand that the phone they're holding in their hands most of the time and the power that they're holding. So, you know, last set of questions is, do you think it's possible for society to adapt to exponential change and learn how to manage it productively? It's a really hard question. Um, I'm, I'm sure we will muddle through. Uh, we will muddle through because we're good at muddling through. Uh, you know, but the, the question is, does that muddling through look more like the depression years or does that muddling through look like a kind of directed Marshall plan? Um, because they both get through. Uh, one, one comes through with a sort of more productive, generative v vigor. Um, what I hoped to do in the book was to be able to express to a wider audience some underlying understanding about how the technologies work so they can identify the right questions to, to ask. And what I wanted to do for people who work in the technology field is draw some threads together, because a lot of this will be familiar to them, but take those threads to their consequences. Um, and, and in a way, you know, if I, if I tell you, Harry, um, don't think of an elephant, what are you thinking about right now? Yeah, 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 of course. It, it's absolutely, it's, you know, suggestive. And so, so by, by laying out these things for these different audiences in different ways, I'm hoping that they will remember them and bear those in mind when they go out and think about how they influence the world, whether it's decisions they make from a product they might buy or, or not buy or how they talk, influence their elected officials or how they steer their corporate strategy or the products they they choose to build. I mean, that's what you would you would hope to do. And then hopefully you create a more streamlined approach to it, um, to the change that needs to happen. Now, here's the, 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 the sort of fascinating thing here is that it, over the summer of 2021, the Chinese authorities across a wide range of, of areas went in using a number of different regulators and stamped on a whole set of exponential age companies, that whether it was yes. online gaming, online education, the big um, multi-sided social networks, a lot of fintech, a lot of crypto. And they, they, they essentially had been observing the experiment to learn and they had figured out what things didn't align with their perceived obligations as a government to the state and to the people. Now, you know, I'm using that language because I don't want this to become a kind of polarized sort of argument. I'm just saying, here's a state where you may not agree with its objectives and it, the way it, it's, account, it's accountability, but in its own conception, it's accountable to its people and has to look, look, look out for their benefit. And it took action on these companies in really, really abrupt ways. Um, 
if you assume that their actions were rational and they were smart people, and I've met some of them and they're super smart people, it tells you something about what what one group of clever people think is needed at these time this sort of time. And and I'm not I, I'm not advocating for that kind of response in the US or in, or in Western Europe, but rather than to say, you know, when your next door neighbor um you live in an apartment block and your next door neighbor he don't like much runs out and says the whole building is on fire the fact that you don't like him shouldn't mean that you should ignore the fact that there's a fire um and and i think that some sometimes there is some real value in looking at how other countries are contending with this and trying to understand the rationale for it because the chinese were for all the strength of their state were really struggling with the power of of the exponential age firms in their in their domain. Within Europe, the European Union has recognized that these companies, the technologies provide a lot of benefit, but the way the companies are structured has a really challenging impact on um, the way in which European citizens' lives um, uh, uh, operate. And they are making taking their own moves. And I'll give you a simple example um, that the right to repair movement has been a very important one. And there's been a lot of legislative pressure in the in, in Europe. That is that we should be have the right to repair, repair our iPhones and smartphones. And having told us for years it wasn't possible, suddenly Apple in the last few days has uh, announced all these repair kits, self-repair kits. So it turns right. out that what is impossible means may mean what's politically expedient uh, uh, rather than anything else. And so m- my sense is that that by engaging in the conversation and being more active, we can get ultimately get better outcomes. And we don't have to go the route of, of you know, China in order to achieve those, which is an incredibly sort of... Draconian way, yes. <laughs> yeah, a very, very draconian. Um, but equally, you can't, you know, you, where, the, where I hear the US debate running around, which is a, ultimately a, about Section 230 of... The Communications Decency Act, and not much beyond that, I think is problematic because it's missing a lot of opportunities um, to to sort of write this stuff and and foster some amazing innovation and some amazing new businesses in this space. Oh yeah, that's again. That's why whenever I get a chance to talk to policymakers, I'm like, you guys need to get ahead of this because you just don't understand how quickly it's moving and how much it's going to impact. Um, what's there and what's going to happen next. And if you think about the business model shifts by some of these, I mean, what I always tell people is like, okay, if you can now sequence a whole genome for $50, think about all the new business models and all the new opportunities that will open up as when it was $1,000. It sort of changes the paradigm, but most people don't think that we're going to see that stepwise change or, you know, Google was, uh, DeepMinds was doing the optical analysis and they announced, you know, they could do one analysis. And everybody was like, oh, that's great, but it's just one. And a year later, they announced we could do 50, right? And I'm like, you're not seeing how quickly this is changing, right? <laughs> one to 50 in 12 months is, it, it, that's a huge shift. And if you consider what the next one's going to be, it changes the whole field. It could change the entire field of ophthalmology 
especially when you combine it with something like telemedicine. So uh, we could talk for hours about this, but um, I look forward to, to continuing this conversation. I think that we would, you know, there's a lot of common ground, although you're, I'm in healthcare and you're almost everywhere else. I mean, I have to say that the, the opportunity in, um, uh, in, in healthcare is so uh, global as well, because, uh, you know, if you think about how long and how much it costs to train a doctor, um, and you think about the kind of margin that live that sits on current medical devices and how um, fragile they might be in certain operating environments. And the thought that you could start to do more and more of this with a $40 sensor inside a $250 smartwatch um, is a really, really appealing uh, and exciting, um, exciting one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the time and uh, look forward to staying in touch. And I, and I wish you great success with the book and, and everything else. Thank you so much, Harry. Appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. You can find past episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and The Moneyball Medicine Show at my website, glorikian.com, under the tab Podcasts. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts to leave a rating and review for the show. You can also find me on Twitter at hglorikian, and we always love it when listeners post about the show there or on other social media. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.